I have the notes. So the notes, I think they were out there in the back there. Maybe somebody wants to make sure everybody has the notes because you will need them today. We're talking about the mediation of Christ's authority to the local church. And it is a subject that I enjoy very much. I used to teach it once a year in January at the church when I was pastoring at New Community Church. Every January, I would take four Sundays out to discuss this topic with the congregation. And I was always amazed at how many people would come to me and said, I've never heard that, or this is the first time I've ever heard this. And yet it's so clearly stated in the scripture. Some churches say, well, the Lord hasn't said very much about how a church should be structured. And they are wrong. He has said a whole lot, not only in First Timothy chapter 2 into 3, but Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, all of these passages, Acts chapter 20, when Christ was interacting with his apostles and he talked to them about the danger of lording it over the flock and saying that that's not one of the leadership styles that we are to use. Uh, everyone knows, and I'm sure it's abundantly clear, that Christ is the head of the church. In the book of Colossians, Paul wrote this to them. He said, He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And he calls him the head. Interesting word. It's a Greek noun, kephale, in the Greek language. It means having prominence of authority. It means having the ultimate authority. It means that Christ is the undisputed head of the church. He is Lord in the sense that he possesses unlimited authority in the church and he has the right to reign in the church. And as Lord, he has issued certain mandates, he's issued certain injunctions and directives, and he can anticipate that those who make up the body of Christ will live in compliance with these mandates that come from our gracious Lord. Paul also wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, 22 through 23, these words. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the undisputed head, the leader. We acknowledge that. But how do we get the authority of Christ mediated to the local church? Some might answer quickly, well, that's easy. We get the authority mediated to the local church through the word of God. And it's true that the word of God is the final arbiter of truth. We know that the word of God is the primary source authority for our faith and practice. And yet God, through his divine providence, organized the leadership structure whose preeminent job is to make sure that the body of Christ understands the word of God with great clarity. A body of men who have been given that assignment 
to occupy the teaching office of the church. And obviously, what they're going to do in that office is to take the Word of God, to expound upon it, to handle it carefully and accurately, and thus enable the people in the church to comprehend God's Word so that they can apply God's Word. So yes, Christ is the ultimate authority. The Scripture sits in authority of all that we believe and how we conduct ourselves But we need the teaching office of the church to assist us in a larger, greater, uh, maybe we might say today, an HD definition of what the Bible says so that we can apply it. Remember all the time, all Bible study, anytime we're studying the word, the ultimate goal is application. And you can't apply what you don't understand. And so God graciously established this office. Now, in your notes, there's an opening paragraph there. I think it's on the right column. Uh, I think Yes, it is. And there's some fill-ins. So let me give you this. Here is the model that the Lord has given to the body of Christ for the mediation of his authority to the local church. In the New Testament churches, we will see that the authority of Christ was mediated to the local church through a plurality of godly men. So that first word is plurality. It's more than one. A plurality of godly men who have been, now watch this, raised up by the Holy Spirit. They're not nominated or elected. They're raised up by the Holy Spirit. They possess, we're going to learn, certain character qualities and certain abilities that are recognized by the existing elders And that's the way they get advanced uh, into that position. Reading on, uh, so it's the Holy Spirit who raises them up. They're recognized by the existing leadership of the church as possessing certain character qualifications, spiritual maturity, certain skills necessary to occupy the ruling and the teaching office of the local church. Now, from my nearly 50 years of experience in church work, the thing that I've noticed time and time again is when people in the church ignore this particular segment of God's word, it's to their own peril. Because as the leadership goes, so goes the church. Division in a church always starts at the top and works its ways down. Unqualified leadership in the body of Christ is a danger to the body of Christ. And yet the church oftentimes does not give the attention they need to uh, to this matter. Now, the, these elders, this plurality of men, elders, they're sometimes called overseers and sometimes called pastors. All three terms speak to the occupants of this teaching office of the church. Uh, there's an illustration of it In Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, it said, From Miletus, Paul sent to the Ephesus and called the elders of the church, the plurality of elders from Ephesus, the presbyteros, that's the Greek terminology. Elder does not necessarily mean an older person as much as it refers to an individual who has the necessary spiritual maturity to teach the body of Christ. He must possess a workable knowledge of the word. 
He must understand the faith. He can't teach what he doesn't understand. And that's why it's so critical. I know at New Community Church, sometimes people are shocked. I think they do it at Grace as well. If you become an elder candidate, you have to take an exam. It's 185 questions. And it's all about our faith. And the reason that we do that is because it's not necessarily to disqualify the man, but to show us the areas where he needs more, he needs more instruction, more teaching. And so it's important that we don't ignore this. Now, he's to be an overseer, which means he oversees the affairs of the church. Same office, the teaching office. He is to be a shepherd. Poimeno is the Greek word, and it means feeding, instructing, leading, protecting, and providing the requisites of the soul for the people of God. That's his job. It's a very significant job, and he must do it to the Lord's glory to the best of his ability. Now, according to the conversation that Peter had with Jesus, the best way for church leaders to demonstrate their love for Jesus is if they feed the flock, if they tend to the flock, if they guide the flock, if they protect the flock. So I often reminded our elders, this is a great way for us to show how much we love the Lord by feeding the flock, guiding the flock, nourishing them on the word of God. Now these elders, these shepherds occupy the office of overseer in a local church. They occupy the teaching office. Um, and you know, it's fun. I find out very interesting to me that in my study, I'd never found in the New Testament a church that only had one elder. There's not a church in the New Testament that has one elder. There's not a church in the New Testament that has deacons and trustees. There's not a church in the New Testament where the congregation votes. <laughs> there, none of that. That's stuff that we have come up with. What some of us have done in some of our churches is we, we have consulted the Constitution of the United States rather than the Word of God concerning the leadership of the church. And we have to consult God's Word. He is very interested in how his authority is mediated to the church. That's why I began this way. He has a tremendous interest in making sure that his authority and his word are proclaimed with accuracy. Now, there's a second office in the church. It's a complementary office. It's the office of deacons. Deacons. Uh, the deacons, their whole responsibility is captured in the term deacon, diakonos, to serve. And deacons serve in whatever way is necessary to minister, to care for the flock of God. The deacons are not an accountability group for the elders. They function in submission to the elders. There's a major difference between the deacons and the elders. Major difference is not only... The elders occupy the teaching office and the deacons occupy the serving office. But the elders, we're going to learn in just a minute, unlike the deacons, are mandated to teach. They must be able to teach. We'll talk about that in a minute. Whereas that's not true for the deacons. The elders and the deacons have basically the same character qualifications. It is interesting to me that deacons are supposed to know the mysteries of the faith. It says that 
in First Timothy chapter 3, that deacons are to know the mysteries of the faith. Do you understand what that means? The mysteries of the faith. If I call on you right now and tell me, what are the mysteries of the faith? <laughs> I ask deacons that, and they go, what? I didn't know about that. They didn't tell me that. <laughs> well, the mysteries of the faith refer to all of those New Testament revelations that were not known in the Old Testament. For example, Christ in you, the hope of glory. They understood the Messiah would come, but they never understood that the Messiah would dwell in them. That the church is going to be made up of Gentiles and Jews. And they're going to be co-heirs of the spiritual riches that are in Christ. It's called a mystery. Here's another one. There's a partial hardening of Israel. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. Partial hardening. Sure, there's a remnant of Israelites that still get saved, but the mystery is a partial hardening until the time of the Gentiles is over. Here's another mystery. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It's called the rapture. That was not known. You can't find it in the Old Testament. You only find it in the New Testament. Well, the deacons are supposed to be aware of that, and that's what it says in the Word of God. That's not all of the mysteries, but that's some of them. Uh, we know that by the time of 62 AD, that the established offices in the church in the New Testament were elders and deacons. And the reason we know that is, listen to this introduction to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. The overseers and the deacons. So by that time, they already had in place the necessary uh, offices of the church. So, the model of church leadership that emerges from the book of Acts and other New Testament writings indicates that certain issues really matter when it comes to knowing whom the Holy Spirit has raised up to these offices. I want to say that to you again. There are certain issues that really matter when it comes to these individuals who would occupy the office of the elder or deacon, but today we're primarily going to concentrate on the elders. So I want you to first take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, before we go in to 2, because I want you to look, to look at what uh, the purpose of the writing of Timothy was. Why did Paul write 1 Timothy? Some of us know that he left Paul there, in Ephesus to pastor that area at that time. But he tells them in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 why he wrote this letter. So let's look at it. He says, I'm writing, for, verse 14, I'm sorry, 14 first. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church, of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. So the purpose of the writing of First Timothy is to order the church, to order its conduct. When the church gathers, this is what they're supposed to do. 
And so, Timothy, I want to instruct you in this so that you can instruct the church about the proper or the appropriate conduct of things that go on in the body of Christ. Now, with that said, I want you to look in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let's highlight the first area that really matters. <laughs> the first area that really matters on your outline, and that is gender matters. <laughs> you know, gender is a big deal nowadays. Uh, I've been told by some congresswoman that there are 64 genders. Um, the Word of God says there's basically two, <laughs> only two. But gender matters when it comes to this whole matter of leadership in the church. And take a look at, uh, let's pick it up in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll read down and I'll kind of break it down for you as we do it. Verse 8, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So Paul is saying when the men are leading the congregation in prayer, there's certain things that need, need to be absent from their own heart, from their own spirit, and that is wrath or intense anger or dissension or division. Verse 9, likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. So his instruction to the women is that when they're where, folks? Where? Where did he, where, where's he talking about here? Where are they? In the what? Church, right? When they are in the church, when they are in the gathered assembly, that it's necessary for them to dress modestly. Why? Because they are never, never to be involved in distracting anyone from the purpose for which the church is gathered. And that is to worship the Lord and to hear his word. So he reminds them, listen, when the church is gathered, make sure, ladies, that you dress appropriately, modestly, that you're not a distraction to the things that are going on within the church at that precious time. You know, we only get to collect together once a week. (laughs) Primarily, I'm talking about for worship on a Sunday. And so he said, at this time, make sure you're dressed modestly. But he goes on, verse 11, And a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, this is uh, where our culture would explode. <laughs> um, now, why is he saying that? He gives two reasons. And I want to, before I show you the two reasons, I want to point out something here. Some people say, well, he was saying that because some of the women in the uh, the Ephesian church were teaching false doctrine and were being disruptive. And that's why he's only speaking to this church. He's not speaking to the church universal. But if you take a look in Ephesians or First Timothy chapter one and verse three, <clears throat> he says, "As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain what, certain what, folks, men, men, not to teach strange doctrine." So the problem wasn't the women teaching strange doctrine; it was men. And Paul says, "Make sure you tell, tell, deal with that." He gives two reasons. He gives two reasons why uh, the women are to receive 
instruction with entire submissiveness. And they go way back to the Garden of Eden. So they're transcultural. They're way beyond. It's not frozen in some culture at this time. He goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he gives the two reasons. And here they are. Take a look at them with me, if you will. He says in verse 13, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. He's talking about the creative order of God. When God created man, he made him first. And being first, he became the federal head of all of humanity. And God entrusted him with the authority to rule over the world that God had created. So the order of creation was done first with man. And then he created Eve, as you might know. He said that it was not good for the man to be alone. I will create for him a co-leader. No, that's the new American standard. No, he didn't. He said, what did he say? He created for him, him a co-helper, one who corresponds to him. And he said it's, the reason he did it is because it's not good for man to be alone. What does he mean by that? Well, Adam was created in the image of God. In the image of God, you had eternal relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How could Adam rightly reflect that truth in solitary? So God gave him a corresponding helper. Helper means one who comes alongside to assist. And so he says, you know what? The first reason why a woman is to quietly receive instruction in the body of Christ is because of the order of creation. The second reason, let's read on, in verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So the first was the order of creation, and the second one was the events of the fall. The events of the fall. Eve, it says, was deceived, completely baffled. In the original language, it conveys the idea of deceptively leading someone from the truth in order to accept error. She was completely taken by what the enemy did in that moment. That's not what happened to Adam. When Adam took the fruit from her and ate it, he did it intentionally, consciously aware that he was now stepping beyond the boundaries of God. She was deceived. Now, some scholars say in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, six it says that Adam was with her. And some scholars say he was with her the whole time. And if that's the case, it's a failure of leadership. Do you understand what I mean by that? He never spoke up. He never disrupted. I'm sure, I mean, this is the first time Anybody seeing a snake talk, I guess that's got to be pretty impressive. But he didn't do anything to stop this whole thing. And then when she, she really, she took the lead. And he followed her. But the end result is that he sinned. And as the federal head, all of us have now the imputed sin of Adam upon all of his progeny. All of us are born with the imputed sin of Adam. 
We are sinners by nature and sinners by practice. But we're all born with that bent, that proclivity towards sin that happened at the time of the fall. So Paul says the reason that the woman should not exercise authority over men in the church is for those two reasons, the order of creation and the events of the fall. And then he says in 3.15, but women will be preserved. That's interesting. The word preserved is the Greek word soza, saved. But women will preserve through the bearing of children. Let me just stop you. We know that he's not talking about the salvation of the soul. Because then we would have two ways to be saved. One would be by faith alone in Christ alone, his death and resurrection alone. And the other way would be if women could have children. But the problem is that there's a lot of women who can't have children. So what is he talking about here? Being delivered from what? Now notice that he's probably, he's talking to Christian women because he mentioned certain virtues there. Let's read on through the whole thing. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in the faith and love and sanctity all with self-restraint. Self-control, sanctity, faith, love, all virtues that would come from a Christian woman. So the salvation here, folks, is not of the soul. It's the salvation of the stigma of being the one who initiates the sin that comes into the world. She's not the one who's responsible for it because what does it say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12? Listen, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So this salvation is not of the soul from sin, but the salvation of the women from the stigma by rearing children in a godly manner by demonstrating to those children what it means to love the Lord and to give themselves completely and entirely in a consecrated life uh, to the things of God. So, so gender matters when it comes to this matter. Second of all in your outline, desire matters. Now I want you to look at 1 Peter or 1 Timothy 3. I'm, I keep on going to Peter. I happen to be studying 1 Peter I was studying it all day today, so if I say First Peter, Peter, no, I mean First Timothy, okay? It's just where I'm at. First uh, Timothy 3 and verse 1, desire matters. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. If he aspires, the word aspires in the original means to eagerly desire, to pursue a desired accomplishment or goal or purpose, to strive, to attain, to eagerly long for. It is a word that captures the idea of pursuing what is of great value to you. It is to set one's hopes and ambitions toward achieving something of great importance. And the word desires, there's two words, aspire and then desires, epithumeo, that refers to that which is greatly desired as a compulsion of the heart. Uh, the best illustration I can give to you is one time when I was in Deerberg's, which um, I think shopping is what you do in hell. So I wasn't there very long. But uh, when I was there one time, uh, there was a, a woman with a cart in front of me 
and she had a little boy in the sitting in the cart, you know, and she was talking to the, the lady at the register and the little boy saw candy and he decided to to reach out so as to grab after something he greatly desired. And he was almost out of the cart. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, you know, as a man, do you just is it okay to grab a child if he's falling out or should you yell or what should you do? Finally, she turned around and she saw that he was almost out of the cart. But he was such an illustration stuck in my mind. There's somebody who greatly desired something, who was risking his life for a Snickers bar or whatever it was. Uh, and that's the idea here that the elder has the sire. Now, I need to tell you in Acts, look in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Don't lose your place here. But I want to point something out to you again. We read it, and we may have just kind of flipped on by it. And I want to show it to you again. 20 and verse 28. He says, be on your guard. He's talking to the elders. He's talking to the overseers, the pastors. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's how precious the church is, by the way. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. So I want to tell you this. If a man has a strong desire to be an elder, it's because the Holy Spirit, who's raising him up, put it there. Do you understand that? If a man has a strong desire to be an elder, it's because the Spirit of God is the one who is bringing him to that position. Just like the Spirit of God called him unto salvation, the Spirit of God is calling him unto service. The King James uh, commentary states, God works from within. He draws men to salvation from within and does the same for service through placing a desire to do his good pleasure. The Bible believer in commentary says, only the Holy Spirit of God can make a man an elder. This is clear in Acts 20 and 28. The Holy Spirit lays a burden on a man's heart to take up this important work and equips him for it. However, let me be quick to say this. A desire for power, a desire for notoriety, notoriety, it's easy to say, isn't it? Self-exaltation. Those are not the kind of desires that the Spirit of God would put in the heart of a man. If your desire to be an elder is to fix the current elders, that's not from the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, we find that uh, the, the men who truly desire that office are willing to die for the sake of the church. Because the Spirit of God puts that in them. Now, what does that mean? That means you are never to coerce, cajole, persuade someone to take the office. That's why the amount of elders should never be determined by a church constitution. They're taking the role of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will raise up the elders. The existing elders and the congregation are to take note of those individuals and to check them to make sure that the Spirit of God is raising them. But if you have to, you know, twist a man's arm, you know, I've seen that in certain churches where 
They have it in their constitution. They have to have seven elders. They only have six. And so they go through the list, and all of these, no, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Finally, some reluctant guy says, all right, I'll do it. They're putting into the office an unqualified man. Because it's a desire that God puts in his heart. And that's important. The next issue that matters, the next issue that matters is character. Character matters. In verse uh, 2 and 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach is an ability. We'll come back to that one. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. So these character qualities, men and women, are nothing more than the character qualities of a godly person. You should find those in any person who desires to live for the Lord, these kind of characteristics. When it says that he's above reproach, that means that he's not able to be taken hold of. He's irreproachable. One Greek scholar stated that in this context, the word refers to one against whom it's impossible to bring any charge of wrongdoing, such as could stand impartial examination. It's very, very important. It's not that he's above an accusation, but the consistency of the character of the man soon puts the accusation to death. You get that? So above reproach doesn't mean he's above accusation, but rather there's a consistency of his virtuous character that soon smothers the fire of a false accusation. And by the way, you, according to the church, take a look in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The church is not to tolerate accusations against an elder except on the basis of of two or three witnesses, which is the biblical standard for the cooperation of an accusation. Consistently, the Bible in the Old Testament, New Testament, two or three witnesses. A witness is someone who actually sees the sinful offense. It's a, a, a coalition of three people who say, yeah, we all agree. We don't like this elder. He needs to be taken off. That's not a witness. A witness can tell of a particular sin and agree together that they had seen and witnessed the sin. And so it says in 519, um, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That is the biblical standard. There is a phenomenal message. I would encourage you to go to Grace uh, Community Church in California and look up Mike Riccardi. And the title of the sermon is this, How to Murder Your Neighbor. And the thrust of that message is that you do that with unfounded accusations. You do that by walking away from the biblical standard, which is two or three witnesses. So false accusations should never prevail in a church based upon the standards that God gives us. Well, he is to be the husband of one wife. In the original language, that's a one-woman man 
or a one-wife man? This qualification implies that he's single-minded in his devotion to his wife. He has, in effect, isolated, centralized all his devotion and love to his wife and is current uphold, and currently upholding God's paradigm for marriage. He's demonstrating that God wants for marriage one man and one woman and one covenant relationship for one lifetime. Now, the problem is, if you study the city of Ephesus and where these men came from, from which Timothy was to look for elders, you would find that he... Most of the men came from polytheistic uh, worship of many false gods and probably were engaged in all sorts of spiritual and sexual immorality. So we're not talking about their past, are we? When we look at these qualifications, we're not looking at their past before they came to know Christ. We're looking at their present. And we're not looking for perfection. There's no... There'd be nobody who could be an elder if we're looking for perfection. So now, if they're married as believers in Christ, they must maintain the standard. What's the standard? Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one. It's one man, one woman, in a one covenant relationship for one lifetime. And you should know that this man loves his wife. You should be able to see it. It should be known to everybody that all of his love and his devotion belongs solely to her. He's to be temperate. Temperate. The Greek word literally means wineless. Interesting. One who abstains from wine, either entirely or at least from its immoderate use. Um, metaphorically, the word refers to one who is restrained, self-control, and orderly. It denotes self-control, balanced judgment, freedom from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. It's describing a moderate person, a self-controlled man, an individual who understands to do things in moderation. He's to be prudent, or in First Timothy or Titus chapter one verse six translates that self control. Sophron is the Greek word. It it also carries the nuance of self controlled, especially as it relates to the exercise of good judgment, discretion, common sense. He exercised control over his thinking so as not to go to extremes. That's the idea here. He's to be respectable. His godly character generates respect and honor. People look at him and they see that respect and they feel that respect and they do respect him. He's to be hospitable. Now, most of us, when we think of hospitable, we think of having somebody over for a piece of pie. But in the first century, many of the people, the Christian believers in the first century were being persecuted. And so sometimes an elder would have to take in an entire family into his home and provide for them. That's the sense of the hospitality, that he's willing to open up his home, he's willing to open up his heart in order to take in people who are in need. So those are some of the things that are important about his character. He's not to be pugnacious. What does that word mean? A striker. <laughs> Um, a guy who loses his temper and knocks somebody in the head. 
Now you say, why is that important? Well, let me tell you, as an elder, there are a few times when I think I came close. <laughs> but by God's grace, you know, you are able to restrain yourself from doing such things. Well, he's going to mention abilities. We already mentioned one there in 3.2. He has to be able to teach. This is the central way the elders mediate the authority to Christ, to the church. It's through teaching. The word teaching there comes from a Greek word that describes teaching to be done in a skillful manner. He's skilled at teaching in such a way that he brings about understanding which enhances the capacity to apply. So he's teaching and his skill is such that you say, ah, I understand that. And then you're now able to take what you understand and put it into practice. At New Community Church, uh, we make it a habit of uh, the elders having to preach from the pulpit and teach in the classes and teach in small groups because we want the people of the, the congregation to know that they all teach and they're all capable of teaching. Uh, being able to teach means it implies they have a workable knowledge of the faith and they have a workable knowledge of the doctrines of the faith. And then he must be able, according to Titus 1 and verse 9, to exhort and refute. To exhort and refute. Uh, he's got to be able to protect the church and encourage the church. He has to make sure that the church is fed well, taught accurately the doctrines of the faith, and he has to stand at the door and tell people, not in this place. This will not be taught here. Uh, Alexander Strzok wrote in his book, and I'm quoting him, the elder protects, guides, leads, nourishes, comforts, educates, heals the flock by teaching and preaching the word. Indeed, many pastoral needs of the people are met through the teaching of the word of God. And then he said, the failure of church leaders to know and teach the Bible is one of the chief reasons doctrinal error floods the church today. If error gets into a church, you, you can know this. If you, if you know of a church that was once solidly orthodox in their beliefs, biblical in their beliefs, but now they're taken over by error that started at the top. It, it started at the top. Because an elder's got to be able to refute those who don't teach sound doctrine. And he needs to encourage and strengthen you and cause you to be mature in the faith so that you can recognize sound doctrine. You see, Satan's chief weapon is deception. It's always deception. He never gives up on that. Our only response to that deceptive weapon is discernment. Biblical discernment. We have to have that. So when these kind of teachings come into the church and all of that, we're able to, to take our ground and stand and hold it firm. Do you remember years ago, I can't, Promise Keeper. How many remember Promise Keepers? Well, we, uh, Jason Ellegood, when he was on staff, um, some of the leaders of that group came to talk to us about our men being involved in that. And one of the things that they said in there is we want to set aside doctrine for the sake of unity. So I asked them, what do you mean by that? 
And they said, well, you know, we don't want people to be conflicting over doctrinal issues. We just want to unify around Jesus. And I said, do you know what the basis of unity is for us? He said, what? I said, the truth. We're unified by doctrinal truth. I'm not setting aside doctrine in order to create some sort of synthetic unity. Our unity is based on the truth. And then they started telling us, oh, yeah, but we have Mormon guys who lead in our Catholic priests who lead in our groups. And so we said, well, we're not going to encourage our men to go. You say, why would you do that? Because that's the responsibility of an elder. Sometimes you, I had people run up to me and said, oh, pastor, you should read this book. It's the greatest book. It changed my life. So I looked at the book. It was The Shack. And I said, number one, the only book that can change your life is this one. And, and then number two, that book teaches an entirely twisted, false doctrine on the Trinity. Trinity is very important to us. So the elder has got to be able to do that. Another skill he has to have, and this is uh, the one where some get into trouble, is they must manage well. They must be people who demonstrate, men who demonstrate that they're able to manage. Uh, take a look, if you will, at uh, chapter uh, 2 or 3, verses 4 through 5. And he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own family or his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The potential elder's home becomes the proving ground for the style of leadership that he would exercise if he were an elder. So that's where you look first. If a church elevates a man to leadership in a church who has failed at managing his household, they are in fact asking him to lead the church knowing that whatever weakness that he had in leading his family will simply be reproduced in the church. So you have to examine how he manages the family. Now manage is an interesting word here because it implies that the children will need and the household will need to be managed, which also implies they're not perfect. I don't know an elder on planet Earth who has perfect children. But he demonstrates leadership style in dealing with the effects of the fall in his own home. How does he deal with them? Because when he takes a leadership position in the church, is he going to be an elder over a perfect church that causes no problems? There is no such church. So what is his management style when he deals with the problems and the issues of home? Is he sort of autocratic all the time, yelling and screaming and reminding everybody he's in charge, not listening to anybody, not desirous of any input whatsoever in any decision he makes. If he's autocratic all the time, he's probably not a good leader. If he's democratic all the time, 
if he can't make a decision unless he polls his family. I can't imagine if I ever brought a paycheck and said, okay, family, what are we going to do? Let's vote on the paycheck. My three boys would have went, Snickers! <laughs> Instead of paying the bills. He, he, he's got to be careful that that's not what he does all the time as a leadership style or a lazy affair, just hands off. Hands off. I've met men. The only thing they do is they come home from work, take the remote, and they say, leave me alone. And chaos is going all around. I've been in homes where nobody's in charge and everybody's in charge. Even the dog is in charge. And so, in other words, an elder, he can't, doesn't demand a perfect family because he can't, every elder, every child born in an elder's family comes prepackaged as a sinner waiting to happen. In pink and blue blankets, with the imputed sin of Adam, as well as the nature to sin and the practice of sin. And so the Bible talks about that, that we have to examine how he manages in his own household. Well, I'm almost out of time. You've been so kind and patient listening to me rant and rave on these issues, but that's the way I feel about them. The next one that matters is maturity matters. He says in 3.6, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Not a new convert means not newly planted, literally, newly saved. In other words, it takes time to grow spiritually, doesn't it? It takes time. And you can get impressed. There can be a young man, he's got a great charismatic personality. He can stand before a crowd and he can speak. He may be funny. He may be all of those kind of things. But is he mature? Because maturity takes time. And so you can't prematurely advance a man to the position of an elder, especially if he has not been saved all that long. But I could see it, and I've seen it happen where people are so impressed with somebody and their personality and their ability to communicate, and they want to advance that person without that person having the necessary growth that it takes to be in that office. So he can't be a new convert. And then finally, reputation matters, 3-7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He must have a good reputation with people outside of the church. There must be a consistency of his character, not only in his family, not only in his church, but out there in the community. I remember when I took over Fox Lake Baptist Church, we went to a restaurant. It was my first day on the job. Um, One of the deacons wanted to take me out for breakfast on my first day of the job. I thought this was great. The waitress came over and he said, Irene, boy, we haven't seen you in a long time. And he said, Pastor, Irene used to attend our church. And she said, I would never attend that church again. (laughs) I'm thinking, okay, this isn't going to go well. She said, "Uh, one of your deacons robbed me in a construction project. That's the first I heard of it. And I told her, I said, well, you can be sure I'm going to check into it. And I did. And he did not do what he promised to do. 
So that man's reputation hurt. There was another time where a guy invited me. It was at 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday. My neighbor, Mike, who lived in a condo, he said, Jerry, come on over. We're having a party. And he said, and we got into a discussion about God and stuff. And I told him that you know everything about God. <laughs> so do you want to come? We'd like, we, I got a circle. We're going to have them sit in a circle and they're going to ask you questions. That's what he said. So I told Cindy, I said, shook her in the bed. And I said, Cindy, I'm going to a party. <laughs> she, uh, she said, what? <laughs> but uh, I walked in there and the first thing I noticed is you could, it smelled like a prairie was on fire. There was so much dope and alcohol around there. So I sat down and guess what? They're asking questions and the Lord is just providing these answers through his word to them. And I'm thinking that this is going to be like a Billy Graham moment. I mean, like all these people might come to know Christ this day. I mean, it was so good in that moment. And then finally, one lady raised her hand and she said, you know, my boss is one of you. I said, what do you mean? One of me is one of you, you know, people with the Bible and being born again. And he's an officer of some sort in his church. But he says, I know very, very well that he has seen another woman and he has been for the last two years. And she said, how do you explain that? So that man, although he was not there, sucked out all that energy from that room because of his behavior. I explained that there are some individuals who may profess faith and may even function in leadership positions and yet not really know the Lord. And I said that the testimony of this man's life of being engaged in an illicit relationship indicates that there's perhaps no new life there. There's no transformation. But that didn't help. So the point is the elder has to have a reputation that's consistent not only in the church, consistent not only in his home, but consistent at work and out there in the world. Well, I'm just going to give you the practical implications. I'm... Hi, Pastor Jeff. I didn't see you there. No. Do you normally do this, what I've done to your your people here today? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does? Okay, that's good. Okay, all right. Let me give you these quick and then we're done. Uh, number one, those who occupy positions in the teaching office of the church are not to be determined by such things as a likable personality, vocational accomplishments, social status, or the ever-changing roles of men and women in a fallen culture. The authority of God's word must rule in this important matter of leadership in the church. You don't get a guy who becomes an elder because everybody likes him or because he's an executive at Monsanto or he owns his own company. The issue is this. Does his character match up with what you see there? One of the best elders that I had at New, uh, Fox Lake was a maintenance man in a factory. That's what he did for a living. But he loved the Lord intensely and demonstrated godly character and the capacity to teach the Word of God like no other layman I've ever known because he was qualified. 
So we we don't go to a membership registry and say, well, we got to get some elders. What about Joe? Everybody likes Joe. Let's make him an elder. You don't do that. The Holy Spirit raises the man up. The existing elders should be able to recognize that, and some of you should be able to recognize that. Number two, the desire to serve in the office of overseer is placed in the heart of the man whom the Holy Spirit has raised up to this position. You must not coerce or conjole or try to convince this person to take this responsibility if he does not desire it. It's got to be something that he desires. Fleshly ambitions, number three, they're not on your outline. I forgot to put them there. I can maybe get them back to you at some other time here. Fleshly ambitions that prompt some to pursue a position in the teaching office of the church does not come from the Holy Spirit. Fleshly ambitions. The desire for the office should be prompted by a strong ambition to be one of the chief servants of the local church. That's what an elder is. Number four, the order of creation and its implications regarding the function of authority and submission must be modeled in the church and in the home. And then finally, the number of elders in each congregation is determined by the Holy Spirit and not by a church constitution. You understand that? All right. I think I have one more, but we'll just finish it right there. Well, let's pray together, and then I guess uh, Randy's going to come and tell us what to do.